And why? And why would I do that? Her eyes were intelligent and they were piercing. Eugene Peterson shares the story of Astrid, a completely unchurched young woman who started attending his congregation and and who eventually made a genuine commitment to follow Jesus of Nazareth as her Savior and as her King. In the ensuing months, she presented herself for baptism. She began growing as a follower of Christ. She began studying and learning the Scripture, attending worship, embracing everything readily and with a glad heart. But there was one thing that puzzled Eugene Peterson. The young woman continued to live with her boyfriend as she had done for years before her Christian conversion. She really wasn't interested in marriage And so Peterson continues the story. He writes, She told me all this without apology, and and not as a confession, but, but quite casually, as we were getting acquainted with one another, and I wondered if I should say anything. I mean, surely I thought she knew that the Christian way had some sexual implications for the way that one lived. She was in church every Sunday. I I assumed that she would eventually notice. I waited for her to bring up the subject. One day, on impulse, I said, We've been having these conversations for seven months now, Astrid. Would you do something for me? Sure. What is it? Live celibate for six months. Surprised. She said, and why would I do that? It's a question a lot of us have had to confront in our own experience. Uh, You know, a lot of us here were not raised Christian, and uh, so we have these questions. And, And let's face it, Memorial is kind of a weird church. I mean, I look out and I see the majority of you are married. We've got kids and families everywhere, and you have two full-time pastors, and neither of them have ever been married. It's, it's, it's normal in the Catholic church. It's weird in the Presbyterian church. <laughs> And yet, every one of us in this room has been single at some point. Some of us find ourselves single again due to one loss or another. And even though the Bible says that marriage is very much God's norm for this era, we were made for it, it is right, it is good, it is indeed very good in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, 3. Nevertheless... Jesus also said in Matthew 22 that a day is coming when every one of us is going to be single again because he said that in heaven there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. We will be like the angels. That's why we say till death do us part because it's the disillusion of the good gift of marriage. What do we do with that? You say, Greg, this is a strange topic for today. Well, perhaps. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) But the calling to singleness and the calling to parenthood are not mutually exclusive. Uh, 25% of of children in the United States are being raised in single-parent households. And even for those called to lifelong singleness, 
There have been a great many throughout the history of the church, including the history of this church, who have felt called by God to use their singleness by investing it in foster or adoptive care. Uh, indeed, a friend of mine who, who lives downstairs from me is a, 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 an unmarried man who right now is taking classes to see whether God might be calling him into foster care uh, as a single parent Christian. All of us have been single at some point. Many of us are going to be single again at some point in this life, whether it's through divorce or through being widowed. And so singleness, then, in light of the coming age as well, is very much a big, big part of God's calling for all of us at some point in our lives. Indeed, some of what we're going to read in this passage might apply not just to single people, but to anyone who's not investing in raising small children. Think empty nester, retiree, so long as your health and strength continues. For some of us, singleness is a lifetime call from God. And so we're going to look today at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in which uh, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, speaks in the most frank, down-to-earth, and yet challenging ways. This is one of the most challenging passages in the whole of Scripture. And, And Jesus, in this passage, through his servant Paul, lays out an incredible challenge And I do not want to be the one to buffer you from that challenge if God is calling you to make difficult or challenging commitments. I don't want to be the pastor who presents himself as a a pillow between you and God so that you don't have to feel what God might be wanting to do in your life. I, I don't want to shield you from that because anything to which God calls you, he's also going to give you the grace and the power to pursue that calling. And he promises that as you seek him, you will even find joy on the journey. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In your pew Bible, if you want to look there, it's page 1778 and following. This is the first epistle to the Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9 and then 25 to 40 as St. Paul addresses these questions of singleness and marriage in this difficult and troubling era. Verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. Paul was unmarried. I wish everybody was like I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And in verse 25, now about virgins, and that just meant unmarried people. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, meaning Jesus didn't actually issue a mandate here. But I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, because you're asking at this point, Paul, what do you mean? What I mean, brothers, he says, is that the time is short. 
From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. He's talking about the Christian man. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control of his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right. He who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happiest if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Any questions? (laughs) What do we see here? We see here a challenge to invest your singleness if God has made you single. See, both marriage and singleness are gifts of God, Paul lays out. And uh, he says, I wish that you were as I am, that is single, but each of you has his own gift in verse 7. Some singleness, some marriage. And every wedding we do celebrates the gift of marriage. But, but I can't remember hearing a sermon on singleness, and I certainly can't remember preaching one. Uh, we don't really often celebrate this and recognize it as a blessing to the church, as, as a gift that God gives to build up his church and to further his kingdom. See, directly or indirectly, subtly or maybe not so much, we can ascribe to the conviction that the single adult is unfinished business, as if everyone else were whole and complete. Uh, you know, we ask in groups and in private conversations, so are you married yet? What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? What you need is a good wife. Found anybody to date yet? I'm praying the Lord will lead you to a good guy. It's too bad he's not married. Yeah, parents say it, relatives say it, family reunions are apparently notorious for saying it. Uh, Books and articles are written from a Christian viewpoint that suggests that if you just made God first and supreme in your own life, that he would reward you by giving you a spouse as if marriage is by works, and as if a spouse is always easier. Um, yeah, the Bible says these are both gifts, that singleness isn't a disease which the cure is, is marriage. Paul is saying, I wish every one of you could have what I have. It's such a good gift. It's so advantageous to the kingdom. But God doesn't give it to everybody. So don't wish your life away 
pining for that day when you will get married and be happy. Because marriage doesn't actually make you happy, it makes you married. And it's not really the destination, it's a different way of pursuing God together on the destination of seeking Him. It's a different way of journeying to God. Um, Elizabeth Elliot was a woman who knew singleness well, she knew marriage well, and she knew widowhood, being single again well, because God called her to all three in her lifetime. And she says this, she says, if you are single today, then this portion assigned to you for today is singleness. And for today, that is God's gift. It ought not be viewed as a problem, nor marriage as a right. God in his wisdom grants both as a gift. And here Paul gives us this reality check about the gift of marriage. I mean, you're laughing this morning already tells me that, that you know. Um, you know, consider what marriage was in the first century. There was no known form of contraception. And so if you were a married woman, you were eternally pregnant until you got old enough, assuming that you didn't die in childbirth, in which case as a father, who would then be a single father, you would have all of the children to raise by yourself. You would have no refrigeration, no clean drinking water, very little sanitation, no antibiotics, no modern medicines. Death was very common. You would certainly be burying at least one or two children during your lifetime. It would be a very difficult life in which you were just trying to get by and keep everybody alive long enough. It was a very difficult life, and you add to that all of the stresses and hurts and disappointments and challenges of being bound for life to another human being who, though made in God's image, is also affected by the fall and damaged, taking all of their issues and adding them to your own issues and hoping that those issues just so happen to dovetail nicely and neatly. You know, what Paul says in verse 28 is he says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Some of those troubles can be lessened by modern technology, but not the difficulty of actually creating a lasting, life-giving, healthy intimacy with another fallen human being. You know, I have single friends who wish they were married, but I have married friends who, who wish they were single because it's hard. It's hard either way. I watch you as, as parents, and I see how raising a family requires such such self-sacrifice, and it comes bundled, not just with great joys and great blessings, but also with a lot of discouragement and exhaustion and very often heartache. You see, both marriage and singleness bring their challenges, even though both are gifts from God. And in our modern world, addicted as it is to themes of romance, this word comes as a very powerful reality check. We have this notion that life is all about personal self-fulfillment. And personal self-fulfillment happens when those glorious eyes look upon you and inside you feel like you're melting like butter in an Arizona desert. And, and yet that never lasts. You've got to have something deeper, a deeper love. It's this reality check he gives us. You know, imagine just the, the most perfect wedding. 
You've got the bridesmaids and the dresses and the groomsmen and their tuxes, the ring bearer with the little ring tied neatly to the cushion, the confetti, and everybody's dressed up and they're on their best behavior. And then, and then suddenly the groom is standing at the altar before everybody and the back doors open up, the organ flares up, everybody rises to their feet and turns to face the bride as she wafts down the center aisle, carpeted as it is, the nave passing through and and she approaches her groom in a flowing dress of the purest white silk, hand-stitched and embroidered, a bit of soft veil coming down from the tiara that anchors her glossy updo with the few slight curls of hair dropping down to frame the angles of her face, her skin smooth without blemish, not even a single pore visible as she glows out in radiance, her face turning slightly with a hint of a smile as she looks into the strong but loving arms of her groom and then she tilts her head back at the proper time as the voice cries out, you may kiss the bride. We have a photo of that. Can we get that photo? (laughs) Maybe we have a photo. And you know, your your heart just melts and yet St. Paul, you know, verse 28 He's giving us this reality check. If St. Paul were going to create a meme, it would be this one. Next slide. Those of you who marry will face many troubles in this life. That's enough, thanks. I'm outlasting my stay. Now, why is this? He mentions the present crisis, and people say, oh, maybe that was just for that day, but it lines up so much with what Jesus says when he talks about those who are called to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. You know, those who have renounced marriage in order to focus all of their time and energy on advancing the kingdom of Christ without the good blessings of marriage and family with all of their subsequent commitments and time demands and and difficulties and many troubles. Um, the present crisis in verse 26. The term present is used, he uses it in Galatians to speak of this present evil age. The crisis is just the ordinary Greek term for necessity or constraints of the current age. Uh, I think what he's saying is that this is true of this whole era, that God does call out some people and, and keep them from marriage specifically so that they can devote their energies to the kingdom of Jesus and the work of the church. Don't let romance blind you to the beauty of this gift. You know, God may call you to marriage. If he calls you to marriage, do it in community with older Christians who can help you evaluate that call. Do it with good, rock-solid biblical counsel. Spend more money and more time and more energy getting ready for the marriage than you spend getting ready for the wedding. Bathe it in prayer. Seek God so that you know it's Him calling you to marry so that when things get difficult, you will have the perseverance because you will know that you are acting in line with God's call all along. But realize, Paul says, there are many troubles. How is this relevant? Well, I think especially when you're young and you meet that perfect someone who looks you in the eye and their, their droopy, lazy eyes speak to you and promising the world, he says, let's run off and live happily ever after somewhere. Listen to St. Paul's reality check. Getting married won't make you happy. It will make you married. Realize that singleness, too, is a gift of God and both bring their struggles. See, Paul is saying, I want you to invest your singleness 
When you're single, there, there's, a conf, there, there's a conflict of interest that you don't have. I hear from so many pastor friends of mine who feel like they're always having to let someone down because there's somebody in their church who needs them to be there right now. It's a crisis, and yet there's somebody in their household who needs them to be there right now, and they're having to choose whether they wound their family to love their church or wound their church to love their family. And it's this constant balancing act. And Paul says here in verse 32 to verse 34 that, that singleness... If it's from the Lord, it enables you to have an undivided focus where you're not having to make those choices because you've got fewer commitments. You've got fewer responsibilities. You're able, whether single again, single forever, or just single right now, to invest those energies that you would be investing in your family, to invest them in other people's families, to invest them in other people's children, to invest them in other human beings in service to Christ. Wes Hill says it this way. He says, Jesus imagines the unwed as those whose lives are to be lived, he says, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Christian singleness, too, like Christian marriage, is one more way in which we begin to unlearn our selfishness, to embrace a kind of spiritual martyrdom, to find our desires redirected toward the city of God. Singleness, like marriage, he writes, is about holy dying, about the sanctifying transformation of desires and of belongings. What's it look like to invest your singleness in the work of Jesus? It's going to look different for everyone, whether you're 17 or 70, single or single again, single for now or single forever. But it will definitely mean investing in other people. See, God is a God of the poor of the alien, of the stranger, of the migrant, of the fatherless child. And he may be calling you to take that time and energy and to invest it in people that no one else has the time or focus or energy to invest in. Um, Whether it's children or children who have grown up into adults. I'm reminded of a funeral from over 10 years ago. Uh, you know, a lot of funerals, I've been at funerals where there are four or five people who maybe show up. This was a funeral where the church he went to wasn't big enough. They had to move it down the road to a larger church. His name was Seth. Um, it was 2006, and he was a man who had never married. He had never had children. He had lived a life long enough to have no surviving parents, just his surviving sisters. And yet this funeral at Covenant Prez was packed. Seth had been a longtime member of his church, and he had all of these people at his funeral, people he had invested in through the decades, people he had loved, people he had served, people he had comforted, people he had encouraged, people he had introduced to Jesus or discipled or trained or mentored. He had been their pastor. He had been their professor. He had been their chaplain. He had been their mentor. He had been a friend to them. All these brothers and all of these sisters and all of these fathers and all of these mothers and all of his spiritual sons and daughters, Seth had the biggest family of any funeral to which I have ever attended. He wasn't trying all those years to gain his funeral numbers. He just accepted a gift that God gave him, a gift that was singleness. And he pursued it. And you see all of these lives that were changed because of Seth. That means learning to be on call, to give love 24 hours a day, seven days 
a week. It's something that married Christians, you often learn, by becoming a parent. When If your child at four in the morning needs love, then you get up and you give your child love at four in the morning. You're on call all the time to give love to your family. And for a single adult who God has called, even just right now, to be single, the challenge is to learn that same ability to invest it instead of focusing on yourself and filling up your time with all the distractions that technology can give you to say, Lord, you've given me this time. Let me invest it. Let me learn to love. Eve Eve Tushnet, who's an unmarried Christian woman, has written about the uncomfortable questions that she's had to ask herself as she lives with a calling she believes to be single. She says, are there ways I could get a little closer to offering the on-call love my married and parenting friends so often must provide? Are there times when I hold myself back from others because I'm too attached to my own freedom, the pleasure of my own company, the security of my own plans and preferences? Do I, change, do I choose ways of helping and giving that are really more gratifying to my ego, like giving advice or selecting presents that I know they'll enjoy and praise? But avoid the boring or gross tasks of love, like making casseroles and learning to burp infants. Could I live the more demanding and chaotic life of the person who knows they have a duty to love? Marshall Siegel says that a big part of the, 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 the freedom you have as a single Christian, if God's called you to that, is the ability to say yes, the ability to be spontaneous. When you're married, you can't just make quick decisions because somebody has a need, but when you're single, you can say yes to that friend who has a need at one in the morning. You can, you can rearrange your schedule with way more flexibility, with, with fewer people being hurt as, as a result of that. To say yes to your singleness by investing it. You know, realize the power of the eunuch for the kingdom. Eunuchs in the ancient world, we think, oh gosh, that's a horrible injury. That must be humiliating. But often eunuchs were were very powerful people. They were put in, in places of great responsibility. Because the eunuch could be trusted. They could be trusted because they weren't going to steal from the treasury in order to take care of their family and enrich their relatives. Because they didn't have any. They weren't going to raid the harem because that wasn't, that wasn't in the game for them. You know, they, but they were trusted. They were powerful people. When Jesus talks about being a eunuch for the kingdom, it's a great responsibility that may carry with it great power. Power of the Spirit. So it's difficult, though. It's difficult for lots of reasons. And this is really a whole other sermon that I'm not really going to get much into. But, but he talks about sexual temptation here. And he says, listen, if you're really going to wrestle here, then it's better to be married. You don't want to spend your life burning with passion. And, and it's interesting because we want him to give more than two options. But that's all he gives. Like, okay, you're either single and not sexually active. And if you can't do that, you're married. And in our culture, that seems crazy. That's, that's what made Astrid ask, why would, I, why would I make these choices? It seems insane. And... Uh, and yet that's there, and that'll be another sermon that's preached on another day, because that's a whole other topic. But sex gets into issues of relational intimacy. And when you're single, it's really difficult to know that there's not somebody who's necessarily going to be there for you in 20 years. There's not somebody who's going to walk with you through sickness. 
There's not somebody who's going to be sharing your life. There may not be someone who knows when your plane is landing or what you're doing on a Friday night. There's a loneliness that goes with that, an isolation, a longing for companionship that God has put in all of our hearts that that is, is sacrificed in some ways. It's very hard to be single. It's very challenging. It's very difficult. It involves self-sacrifice. It involves suffering. When you give up something so natural, so human, so God-given, and yet there's something more than the sex and the intimacy that is difficult when God calls you to be single. It's something that we don't even think of but it's something that would have been painfully obvious to every reader in the first century because the single person in being single is giving up what? They're giving up descendants. Their name will not be carried on. They're giving up their social security because when you're old and frail and have no income, your children and grandchildren are the ones who will provide for you. They will nurse you back to health. They will make sure you have a home over your head. They will feed you. They will support you. They will carry you if you cannot walk because they're your family. They're committed to that. And for the first century Christian to give that up was to make a choice to live in a very unsecure, terrifying environment in which there would be no family to take care of them when they're old. Temptation, loneliness, an uncertain future. The question comes, why would anyone choose to be single? How is it even possible to accept such a call? And in all of this, Paul is grounding us in the message of the grace of Jesus. He talks about the Spirit of God on us in verse 40, about belonging to the Lord in verse 39. That means having a community, having the people of God, what we preached a couple weeks ago, who are there. It means intimacy and having a spiritual family where it's safe to be open and honest about struggles, where friendships can be formed, where relationships can go deeper where no one is ultimately alone. That's the context. The context of the Bible is always the church, as the family of God, as the bride of Jesus. It's also pointing us to a lasting home. In verse 25, he speaks of the Lord's mercy, belonging to Jesus, the bridegroom, the church, his bride. We're all longing for a deeper marriage, for a better marriage. Even some of you who are married have shared with me how your loneliness in getting married, for some of you it didn't go down. In fact, for some of you it went up and you find yourself lonely in a marriage and lonely in a crowd and lonely in your family. That loneliness, that echo, that longing is a longing for something deeper, a deeper marriage, a deeper relationship, a deeper home, a deeper family that ultimately can only be satisfied fully and finally in God himself in Jesus the bridegroom I've been asked before what my life verse is what passage most motivates me what passage when I open it I weep because I feel like God is speaking directly to me and to no one else it's a passage from which the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem is named the Vad Yeshem See, I was raised a non-Christian. I became a Christian and entered the church in college. And I think God has made clear to me that he has called me to singleness, not just now, but long term, with all the insecurity 
that that entails. All the fears, all the unknowns from being unmarried with no descendants. What's my life verse? It's something Isaiah the prophet spoke 2,700 years ago about foreigners and eunuchs who were by definition unclean within the family of Israel. It's Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, where the Lord speaks, saying, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, To them I will give within my temple, in cleanness and holiness, the presence of God. Within my temple and in its walls, I will give to them a vad yashem, a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. A memorial and a name in the house of God, a better marriage, a better family an eternal home that will never disappear. It's the promise of God to every Christian who hears the Lord's voice and believes. And why would I do that? It was that day on impulse when he said, live celibate for the next six months. And why would I do that? And there was silence for a moment. He looked up at her. He said, trust me. I think it's important. He writes, I learned later their boyfriend moved out before the week was over. A month later, when she came to see me, she didn't mention a thing. But the second month afterwards, she brought it up. She said these words. She said, when you asked me to live celibate for six months, I had no idea what you were up to. You asked me to trust you, and so I did. It's been two months now, and I think I understand what you were doing. I feel so free. I've never felt so myself before. I've never felt so at home with myself. I thought everybody did what I was doing, and all my friends did. I thought it was just the American way, and it was. And now I'm noticing so many other things about my relationships with others. They seem so much more clean, so much more whole. My life is so uncluttered. And do you know what? I want to serve the Lord, and there may even be a day when God calls me to get married, and I'm going to be okay with that. Thank you. That decision to be celibate. It survived the six-month mark, and it counted down two more years after that, at which time Astrid and her fiancé exchanged marriage vows, and Eugene Peterson himself was the one who was able to bless their covenant of marriage. Let's pray.